You've heard about spear phishing emails and so-called business email compromise attacks, but do you know how to spot them if they're targeting your organization? If not, you might want to tune in on January 24th at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time for a Security Ledger webinar sponsored by Greathorn. We're going to be talking about how modern email-based attacks can be stopped with a full lifecycle approach to security that combines perimeter-based detection with user awareness and robust incident response and remediation. To register, go to securityledger.com slash email. That's E-M-A-I-L. Securityledger.com slash email to register. This is the Security Ledger Podcast, and I'm Paul Roberts of the Security Ledger. In this week's podcast, more and more of our physical surroundings are populated by small wireless sensors. How secure are they from hacking and manipulation? Not very secure, says our second guest, Roy Mitt of the firm Regulus Cyber. We'll talk with him about sensor insecurity in our second segment. But first, the Consumer Electronics Show wrapped up last week out in Las Vegas. There was a lot of hoopla about VR, AR, drones, massive TV screens, and powerful new laptops. It may have drowned out a nagging question. How long will any of these new gadgets last? What will happen to them when they break, when their batteries expire, or when they reach the end of their useful life? Such questions are are almost forbidden at glitzy shows like CES, focused on the wonders of new gadgets, not the burdens of old ones. Fortunately, at least one person among the 180,000 or so visitors out at CES was thinking about issues like repair and reuse. He is, of course, Kyle Weens, the founder and chief evangelist at ifixit.org, the internet's leading repair website. In our first segment this week, we sat down with Kyle in the Security Ledger studio to talk about what he saw out at CES whether repair was on the agenda at the massive electronic show, and whether any of the cool new things out on the show floor there are fixable. I'm Kyle Weens, uh, founder of iFixit. CES this year was similar to past years. There, There's a lot of, you know, throw it at the wall and see what sticks kind of gizmos. There's some hints at future technology to come. There's a lot of AR, a lot of VR None of it's really good enough to be usable, but they're showing a lot of things off. A fair amount of drones, and I think all that is we're, we're coming upon the kind of plateau of productivity a little bit in the drone space. Lots of real-world applications there. And then lots of self-driving car discussions. Okay, I mean, Kyle, CES itself is run by the Consumer Electronics Lobbying Group, right? So I'm guessing it's not a super-friendly environment for people like yourself who are interested in talking about fixing things and extending the life of electronics versus just, I don't know, tossing them in the garbage heap and buying new stuff. Yeah, it is interesting to be there while everybody's rolling out the new things and saying, well, hey, what if we keep the old things longer? There's sort of a fundamental dichotomy there. And it was interesting. We talked to a lot of companies where they roll out a product and say, well, how long is this going to last? If, well, it's a great product. Said, yeah, but how long is it going to last? Well, it should last a long time. Okay, but there's a battery. How long is the battery going to last? Well, that'll probably last 14 to 16 months. Well, is there a plan to replace the battery? No, you need to get new headphones when the batteries wear out. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, this migration away from the headphone jack to Bluetooth headphones has brought this world of obsolescence into headphones very quickly, I think, in a way people weren't expecting. So these Bluetooth headsets you're talking about, they just have built-in batteries. There's no option to replace them. 
Yeah, the batteries are glued in. I don't know of any like flagship, any or Bluetooth earphone that has a re- replaceable battery. Everything from Apple's AirPods to everything else, the batteries are integrated, and when they wear out, you replace the headphones. I don't know if that's something that Right to Repair will address or not. Right to Repair doesn't hack device design. What it says is you have to repair parts available. So if it's physically not possible to repair the thing, like Apple's AirPods are so glued together, I don't think even Apple can fix them. Then I don't think Right to Repair will help with that. But it should help with a lot of other gizmos, a lot of other products like laptops, where Apple isn't selling batteries for laptops, but everybody needs them and they are possible to swap. Interesting. You know, I know because I follow your Twitter feed that one of your standard conference lines was to be asking people about like the lifespan of the devices that they were hawking and the ability to recycle them, sort of their recyclability, I guess. Sure. I know you're at a trade show and so people there are mostly are talking, the people you're talking to there are mostly marketing people in the trade show booth, but did anyone have any good answers for questions about things like recyclability? Yeah, the marketing and PR people have no idea. They haven't thought about it. It never crossed their mind that people might ask how long will it last or how do I recycle this? No one has been briefed. I didn't find a single PR or marketing person the entire show that could come up with a cogent answer about about what they're going to do with the products when they wear out. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting because just ahead of CES, we had this big earnings warning from Apple. And one of the reasons they cited for missing their earnings numbers was the trade war with China, of course. But the other was that as Tim Cook said, people were holding onto their iPhones longer and God forbid repairing them, replacing batteries and making other small repairs that keep the devices in service longer. So repair was in the air out there at CES, but what you're saying is not for these companies that were releasing new devices at the show. It certainly seems like their CFOs are starting to get it. I mean, what happened a year ago when Apple uh, uh, admitted that they were slowing down devices with older battery in them, and that was a collective kind of aha moment for the entire public. Up until then, people had been on this treadmill of, you know, your phone gets slow and there's a new one and the camera's better anyway and uh, might as well get a new one. Uh, but now as, as new versions are not as significantly better from the previous version as they used to be, the, the delta of improvement has gotten smaller and smaller every year. And we all realize that, that they pulled a fast one over us on the batteries. People are, are, are slowing down their upgrade cycle. Instead of getting a new phone every two years, maybe they're looking at every three or four years. So, Kyle, do you see any reason for optimism at a show like this year's CES? That things like repair, maintenance, you know, the availability of replaceable parts will be more common going forward than they have been in the past? Or are the devices you're seeing out there in Las Vegas mostly throw it on the trash heap and buy something new when it's done? Yeah, you know, I, I do see some hope. Uh, it was interesting talking with representatives from both HP and Dell, and they both had new laptops to show off. Dell actually had a new laptop that can that has a GPU that's swappable, and mm. they were having people swap out the GPU on the show floor. And, of course, you know, g- the graphics cards get better faster than you need a new laptop, and so being able to swap that is a big deal for gamers. And so that was really cool. Uh, and... And both, you know, talking with both HP and Dell, their marketing people were very familiar. I'd ask them which laptop that you have is easier to find and they give me the spectrum of their products. So they're, they're really starting to get it and they're starting to incorporate it in their messaging, uh, which, is, which is exciting to see. 
Okay, one issue you guys at iFixit have been engaged with is this eco-design percolating in the EU uh, that would require products to be repairable and serviceable. Um, if you could, in a few words, you know what's going on in the EU right now with regard to the right to repair? The European Commission has a bit of a different approach than we do, where they will actually regulate device design. Where here in the U.S., we'll have something like Energy Star, which is an optional sticker that says you're energy efficient. In Europe, they will actually mandate and say the product must be this energy efficient or it's not legal to sell electronics with lead in it, for example, was part of the Ross Directive back in the day. And because Europe is such a big market, the manufacturers tend to follow the European directives everywhere in the world. And so Europe has driven improved energy efficiency across electronics. They've driven improved recyclability and, and they got, they, you know, kind of one fell swoop got lead out of the solder and all the electronics. Europe has a long history of driving this kind of environmental innovation. And what they are considering now is an update to the Eco Design Directive across a broad swath of products, everything from refrigerators and washing machines to some kinds of computers, where they would require manufacturers make service parts available and repair information available to independent shops and consumers. And if the EU was to do that, do you think it would have an impact over on this side of the ocean? I think if, if they did it, it would certainly have an impact everywhere. Uh, I mean, manufacturers aren't going to comply with it just in Europe, probably. They're going to have to start doing it elsewhere. Um, but Europe hasn't passed kind of far-reaching right to repair in any given category yet. Uh, we're optimistic. Um, they've had some preliminary votes, um, but the manufacturers have been lobbying hard to water down the measures. And, and so we will see. There was, a, there was a protest two days ago outside the European Commission office demanding access to parts for independent shops. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. Kyle, here in the U.S., a number of states are considering right-to-repair laws, including where I am right now in Massachusetts. So if you were to handicap the chances of any of those getting passed, uh, where do you think right-to-repair yes. advocates have the best chance of succeeding? Well, that's what's exciting is we really only have to get this done in one state. Uh, mm -hmm. Back in 2012, when Massachusetts passed the Auto Right-to-Repair Initiative, uh, that effectively passed auto right to repair for the whole country. Last year, we didn't quite make it, although we got close in some of the states. I think I'm hopeful that we'll have uh, that many states again this year, and that will then you know lead to hopefully you know getting it done in one of those states. I don't know. I mean, it's still a long shot. We have the manufacturers pulling out every dirty trick they possibly can to stop us, mm -hmm. and we need help. So it's really going to be a measure of how effective the grassroots is, how effective all of you are. Mm -hmm. at, at pitching in and helping us get this done um, because it's a technical issue and legislators don't fundamentally understand technology generally. Most of them don't have a technology background. So it's up to people like us to show up and, and explain it to them. Otherwise, the manufacturers will do it for us. Mm. Uh, with regard to Apple, I wonder, do you worry that if Tim Cook is saying repair is taking a bite out of Apple's bottom line, that that company will now redouble its efforts to defeat right-to-repair laws that are being proposed in, you know, more than a dozen states in the, in, the, in the coming year? Are they, or alternatively, might Apple sort of read the writing on the wall and say, you know, we just need to find new ways to make money as a company that doesn't involve selling everybody a new iPhone every 18 to 24 months? Yeah, I hope not. I hope that uh, the, they understand that this is a temporary correction. I mean, what's happening is not that people are stopping buying Apple products. They're just not buying them as frequently. We don't need to upgrade our phone every 
you know, every, every two years, we can upgrade every three. And so as there's this transition from two years to three years, their sales may suffer a little bit, but over the long term, you know, the, the value of these devices, the, the, the way that they hold their value over time, that's a really good thing for Apple. And, and the fact that they last longer should help them retain their value and help them justify higher price points. So I think over the long run, right to repair is going to be very good for Apple. We just need clear heads to prevail internally to carry that message uh, to the government relations team. Kyle, we're only at January 9th, so there might be some Security Ledger podcast listeners out there who are still trying to decide what their New Year's resolution (laughs) is. Is there a repair-related resolution that people might want to think about adopting? Yeah, well, I'd say just commit to fixing one thing. Pick something at some point that that breaks this year and and fix it, whether it's a whether it's a chair or a, or a cell phone, um, once you kind of get into the spirit of it, I mean, it's fun. You get to learn uh, something new, pick yep. up a new set of tools and yep. skills, uh, and, and hang on to something that you've already got. And Kyle, were there debates or discussions or panels there at the show about right to repair, or was it mostly an issue that wasn't being discussed, at least in the open at this year's CES? I didn't see any panels on right to repair. There may have been, and I missed them. Um, it certainly is something that a lot of people were talking about. I mean, it's interesting, even as uh, you know, CES is raging on, the biggest news in tech right now has nothing to do with CES. It turns out that the cell carriers are spying on all of us, and bounty hunters can get your information, and Jeff Bezos is getting divorced, and all these other news items uh, that, are, that are drowning out CES. So I don't think I'm, it's anything new that, that CES is not the center of the universe. Um, but certainly a lot of conversations on the floor about, about right to repair and the manufacturers are keeping a very close eye on what the states do. Yeah. I mean, as far as we know, the Bezos divorce is unrelated to that surveillance story, but who knows, right? Who knows? Seemingly unrelated. Yes. But you never know. Kyle Weens of iFixit. Thank you so much for coming in again and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. Thanks for having me. And if you want to get involved, call your legislator wherever you are and and ask them to either support the bill or introduce the legislation themselves. Kyle Weens is the CEO of iFixit. From automobiles and industrial robots to streetlights and smart personal electronics, more and more of our private and public space is being equipped with sensors. Small wireless sensors that communicate using Bluetooth or long-range wireless technologies monitor everything from braking and tire pressure on a moving vehicle to the load on a bridge, the pressure in a gas line, or a patient's heart rate. But are these sensors secure? And if they're not, how do we know if the information they're feeding us about the world is accurate and reliable? Those are the questions that Regulus, an Israel-based cybersecurity startup, is tackling. In our second segment, we sat down with Roy Mitt, Regulus chief marketing officer to ask him about the company's technology and about the broader problem of sensor insecurity. Roy Mitt, chief marketing officer of Regulus Cyber. Roy Mitt, tell us just a little bit about Regulus and what Regulus does. Gladly. So uh, Regulus is a cyber startup based in Israel that is focused on protecting sensors commonly used in autonomous systems, such as driverless cars and trucks, uh, and even aviation and maritime systems like uh, autopilot systems uh, for aircraft and uh, cruise controls for ships. And what we do actually is dealing with the forgotten side of cyber, I would even say, which is the whole issue of vulnerability of sensors. Unlike uh, most cyber threats who are dealing with the connected hacking threats, Regulus is dealing with the threat of jamming and spoofing, which are two types of attacks against sensors. 
So jamming is completely blocking the input for a certain sensor, and spoofing is uh, transmitting fake signals that trick the sensor, essentially hacking its capability of seeing the world. And those two are very serious threats, especially now in the era of autonomous technology. And Regulus is focused about providing products against those threats. And Roy, uh, when we're talking about sensors, what types of sensors are we talking about exactly? What types of devices are these attached to? So the three most common sensors used on every autonomous platforms are cameras, radars, and LIDARs. Those are the eyes and ears of every car. And in addition, we are also addressing uh, GPS, satellite navigation, as a sensor as well, because unlike until now, it was just some kind of uh, navigation and support. It is now becoming the essential core of any autonomous platform uh, navigation. So we treat it as a sensor as well. So our product line is called uh, Pyramid, and we have Pyramid GNSS for satellite navigation, Pyramid Radar, Pyramid LiDAR, and in the future we will also be offering uh, a Pyramid camera at some point. So in the cybersecurity context, we're used to defensive products that are working maybe at the packet or protocol level to stop things like denial of service attacks and so on. Right. When we're talking about sensors, how does this protective technology work? So our approach at Regulus is actually building upon the electronic warfare technologies developed in the military and defense industries. I don't know if you're aware, but uh, in the military realm, many, many uh, armed forces around the world have both offensive and defensive sensor capabilities. And this is an issue that has been heavily researched and developed in the defense industries. So we identify that the same vulnerabilities are going to be extremely hazardous once autonomous technologies are becoming part of our everyday civilian life. And the way it's done in the military and in our technology is by creating some kind of a filtering system that receives the inputs directly from the sensor, able to identify what is the fake signal and what is the real information, and then only transmitting the clean, real data into the sensor fusion and AI processing parts of the process. I can give you a specific example in the case of uh, GPS. So if someone transmits, if someone transmits a fake satellite signal, and it's very easy to do. All you need to do is acquire something called software-defined radio, which is sold online in Amazon and eBay for 200 or $300. It can basically lock on to the existing satellite signals that's coming from space, but generate it in a much more powerful uh, transmission than the one coming all the way from space from the satellites themselves. And the target would automatically lock on to the more powerful signal. And at that point, you're essentially have full control of where your uh, target thinks it's currently located. In the case of an autonomous system, you can easily redirect or reroute your uh, target using that spoofing method by transmitting that satellite signal. Our technology has the capability of identifying what is real signal and what is the fake one, essentially alerting the AI or the sensor fusion part of the system do not trust that satellite signal and do not count on it for your navigation and sensor processing uh, purposes. And this is the world first because up to now, this kind of uh, spoofing detection capability was only reserved for the military and defense industries, especially because of the size and the high cost. 
and our innovation in Regulus is the ability to take that technology, shrink it to the size of the palm of your hand, and reducing the cost to a few dollars. So finally, this is something that is relevant for the civilian market. Roy, when you're selling any security technology, obviously one of the big questions is, are there real problems out there that require this new defense? Are there threats? Are there attacks? Um, in the case of sensors, uh, is that the case right now? Are there actual attacks out there? So that's a great question. The way we perceive the threat today is it's still minimal, which means all the spoofing incidents that are currently being published, including of 53 commercial vessels being spoofed at the Black Sea at the same time, all of those incidents are huge in scale, but they are still rare. I would say that at least from our uh, research, we find that there is a spoofing or jamming incident on a monthly basis. But still, because autonomous technology is still not at full deployment, you always have humans in the loop that take control of the system as soon as there's something going wrong, whether it's a ship, an airplane, or a car. So right now, we perceive the threat as something that is still evolving. But just like you know, in any cyber industry, you have to start dealing with the threat before it's already happening at full scale, and it's too late, especially when you have human lives at risk. It will be too late once there are level 5 autonomous cars everywhere in the streets, or autonomous drones flying above our cities, and they are all using the same vulnerable sensors, and a perpetrator with a single device can shut down entire cities, cause havoc, or uh, initiate large-scale incidents. This is a, a point in which developing and implementing such a technology would be too late. And we see the same process that took place back then with sensor defense in the military. So right now we are working with all the manufacturers in aviation, maritime, automotive, to prepare for that threat of tomorrow when autonomous is at full deployment. Uh, historically, I mean, one of the issues with sensors is that often the data they're sending back and forth is unencrypted and therefore subject to being intercepted, tampered with. Is that a problem that your technology addresses or that others are addressing right now in the sensor market? Yeah, so this is a great question. Uh, at the moment, this solution is left completely unaddressed. We also don't deal with encrypting the actual uh, transmission. We deal with uh, filtering the incorrect or uh, pur purposely fake signal coming in. It's important to say that when you look at systems such as um, GPS, the, that was created in the 80s. Back then, the awareness to cyber threats and encryption was much different, as you probably know. And this is the same system, the same legacy system used across every single GNSS receiver in the world. And we're talking about 5.5 billion receivers currently receiving those unencrypted satellite signals. So changing this entire system is practically impossible. The only way to deal with this threat now is actually creating a defense system at the input source of the sensors. So you're out there right now at the Consumer Electronics Show. You can hear the uh, crowd noise in the background there. Uh, tell us, Roy, what you're yeah. doing, what Regulus is doing out there at the show, and also just your impressions of the show this year. First of all, I'm amazed to see that CS is having such a large focus on automotive, specifically autonomous cars. There's a whole, uh, there's an entire section, a massive section dedicated to the future of transportation and automotive technologies. Most of the exhibitors here are the 30 largest 
automotive companies in the world. We even have some aviation and maritime companies exhibiting here and multiple sensor companies selling advanced camera, LiDAR, infrared, uh, and even uh, LiDAR systems, and the, including uh, GNSS antennas and receivers. So our target audience is all around our booth. We have a constant stream of people uh, standing in line here at the regular booth waiting to see the demonstration that we do. Uh, we take, uh, like I said, cell phones, and we demonstrate how easy it is to hack, for example, the GNSS receiver of the cell phone and how our system is differentiating between the real satellite signal and the fake one, notifying the phone system that this signal cannot be trusted. So this is quite innovative. I have to say that I spoke to several sensor manufacturers in, in the conference. Almost all of them are aware that they have this built-in vulnerability in the sensor, but they say the same thing. We are too busy making the sensor smaller, faster, cheaper, and more efficient, we don't even have the time or the capacity to deal with the cyber threat. And this is something that specialized companies would be uh, dealing with in the near future. I mean, obviously, going back to t 2015, we've already seen a wireless uh, attack on a connected vehicle, um, uh, Charlie Miller and Chris Valasek. Um, based on what you're seeing out there at CES, does it seem to you that automakers are taking the threat of wireless attacks on sensors seriously or that there's still more work to do to convince them that security for sensors on their vehicles is a priority? That's a great question. I wish I had an answer for you, but I'll tell you my assumption. Uh, regulation with history proves, and I've been uh, dealing with cyber for the past few years. There are different things that are dealing with autonomous systems. Regulation is always a step behind because implementation of new rules or certification takes a long time. So unfortunately, I see 2019 as a, as a year in which we might witness more than a few incidents involving sensor uh, cyber attacks and sensor threats. And only at this point, it will cause a mass market reaction to start adopting the kind of technologies Regulus is offering. A big part of our job right now is to raise awareness to this issue. And since there's not many autonomous systems out there, there's not many potential incidents for spoofing and jamming attacks of sensors. So we definitely see more and more incidents happening over time. And I'm certain that by the end of 2019, we will have a different conversation when I'm describing the awareness of the market. I mean, obviously, going back to t 2015, we've already seen a wireless uh, attack on a connected vehicle, um, uh, Charlie Miller and Chris Valasek. Um, based on what you're seeing out there at CES, does it seem to you that automakers are taking yes. the threat of wireless attacks on sensors seriously or that there's still more work to do to convince them that security for sensors on their vehicles is a priority? So, I have to say that I'm surprised positively by the OEM companies I'm meeting here in CES. Most of them are very keen to improve their cyber defense capabilities because they know that all it takes is one incident that can result in injury or death to destroy their entire brand and slow down the autonomous uh, implementation uh, process. And they don't want to take any unnecessary risks. 
And these companies are not uh, staffed by cyber experts, but they are constantly eager to learn more and understand how they can improve their defenses. And you mentioned connected car attacks that started a few years ago. Back then, all the connected cyber startups for autonomous cars were also struggling in educating the market, teaching OEMs and tier ones and infotainment manufacturers about the threats of connected cars. Mm-hmm. And look at it at Insta today. Today, every company making an autonomous car obviously knows that it has to come with connected car cybersecurity. And I see the same process starting now for sensor cybersecurity. Right now, the capabilities of both jamming and spoofing, especially when it comes to jamming and spoofing satellite navigation, is accessible to everyone. Jammers and spoofers are sold online in every e-commerce store. I don't know why. It's a big threat. And just a few months ago, we received reports of multiple spoofing sources across the U.S. and globally. And when we looked into it, we realized that many Pokemon Go players that are too lazy to leave their home to catch Pokemons outside are using GPS spoofers inside their home to spoof their own phone. And they're not aware they are actually spoofing their entire neighborhood. Now think of the autonomous car driving next to their house during this spoofing transmission. This will cause havoc in their entire neighborhood or city. And this shows that naive people are holding potential terrorist weapons in their hands. And this is out of control. Yeah. I knew that Pokemon Go craze was going to end badly for everyone. (laughs) Uh, But seriously, though, I mean, I think what that story illustrates is really what a low bar uh, there is for anyone to adopt and deploy this technology that potentially could have serious cyber physical consequences. I mean, if some guy is doing it just to to juice his Pokemon Go scores, uh, that's not a very high barrier at all, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now think about all the criminal and terrorist organizations who already acquired right. these devices and they're using them for different purposes. And some That's of them right. are already That's documented. Right. And they've got real motivations, right? Whether it's ideological exactly. or, or financial, right? Exactly. Right. How can you trust a car to take a VIP politician from one point to another which you can easily take over the satellite navigation and just drive it anywhere you'd like? Hey, Roy, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Roy Mitt is the chief marketing officer at the firm Regulus. You can find them at regulus.com.